Again, let's go to Second Peter. Uh, I will say again that I had not intended really to get into the subject matter of Second Peter two. Uh, and let me let me find it here in chapter two. This series was designed about faith, hope, and love. This just happened <clears throat> to come in the context because Peter, who was essentially his overall thing being hope and was speaking of those things that make, which make us hopeful, then included a section that will cause our hope to be diminished or destroyed. And that is by some who will go against those whom God has put in charge. And I say in charge advisedly, and we'll get to that later on. We got down to verse 17, uh, having discussed quite a bit those who would speak evil of offices and those in those offices that God has put in the church and that this would happen in the end time, as he says earlier. Uh, and these are church members, those who feast with us, just as a matter of review, of review. And he uses some pretty poignant examples from the Old Testament to show that anyone in that kind of attitude has the same attitudes as uh, Balaam and others of that ilk. Uh, Jude also confirms this. We've not gone there yet. But let's pick it up in verse 18 of Second Peter 2. Uh, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, and we shall see that that which is being promoted at the moment is great swelling words of vanity, self-deception, and twisting and misusing the scriptures. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. Now, this whole subject here, well, it can cover many different elements but remember, he said, chiefly, the biggest problem is those who will cause dissension and division by denying the government that God has placed within the body of Christ. That is the biggest problem, and I'll explain why shortly. And the way they allure is to convince people that there is not to be a ministry, or if there is, which is hard to deny when you read the Bible, that they should be toothless and have no power or not be in charge of anything, but just be servants only. That is, those who uh, sweep the floor and bring you a drink, I suppose, is what they mean by that. Uh, maybe that's oversimplification. But the desire of the carnal human being is to not be told anything to do. They want to do what they wish, they do not want any authority over them. That is the way the human mind naturally works. And we rebel against anything that gets in the way of that self-direction and self-centeredness. So that is the horror of the lust of the flesh. It can mean other things, but let's not get away from the main subject here. And through much wantonness... Wantonness means doing those things which are contrary to God's way. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So those who live in error are the churches, the religions of this world, 
We were called out of that and their democratic and majority rule type of governments that some of them have, and were taught the truth. Now, those who escaped the wrong way are being led back into the wrong way by some who have written papers, and those papers have been uh, passed out, and they do appeal to human nature. They really do because those things which we would like, they deny. So it says, while they promise them liberty, okay, they promise there will be no government over you, quote unquote. You can have liberty. You can be self-directed. You do not need teachers. You do not need ministers. You have a mind of your own, and you can take care of yourself. So, the promise here that Peter is talking about is that they will throw a carrot in front of you described as liberty. You are your own. No one can tell you what to do. We'll get into that. But the Bible tells us what to do, doesn't it? Doesn't the Bible tell us what to do? You pick a subject. It doesn't matter what it is. Marriage, child rearing, uh, farming. Pick anything. Business. Pick any subject you want. The Bible has instruction about that. Attitude, the things we say, the things we eat, the things we wear, the way we decorate ourselves. The Bible has instruction on everything to do with a human being, okay? And the ministry has been instructed, and Paul instructed some of the ministers, to be instant in season and out of season, and to preach every word of God. All the instruction. So, if I cannot, and if the ministry cannot tell you anything that you should do, they can't preach the Word of God. It's just that simple. Because any subject that can be brought up, God has something to say about. So it isn't the ministry, it isn't the preacher that is being rejected, it is the Word of God. And then those who have been assigned to teach and preach the Word of God are also being rejected. We'll see an example of that in just a moment. So while they promise liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. They're corrupting what God has set in the church by speaking evil of those whom God has set. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. And those who would depart from the way of God and the way God has set up the administration of the church through men will not stay together. They will go aside, but you know, you cannot accomplish anything. You cannot do anything unless someone is in charge. We know that in business. We know that in sports. We know that in anything that has to be done. And any time you get two people together, whether it be on a desert island or anywhere else, someone will be in charge. Someone will take the lead. Someone else will do as they say or follow their lead. 
It happens when you have two people together, no matter what. Because you can't build a sandcastle on a deserted island with two people unless someone agrees to go along with the way someone else wants to do it. It is impossible. So, they will come into bondage of their own false doctrine. Now, I want to depart from that here for the moment. And I want to take an overview. Let's understand, brethren. I'm not here to castigate anyone who does not understand or has taken a wrong direction. I'm not here to yell and shout and scream and get angry. I'm here to show you what God says in his word. Well, let's take an overview of where attitudes come from and what agendas might be and where they started. And let's look at it from all through history, different eras and time. I'm not going to spend a great time on the Old Testament. I'll give you a few piquant examples and we'll move on because most of the objections that people have are in the New Testament and we'll cover those for the most part. But let's understand where this attitude of not wanting anyone to have any say in people's lives comes from. Just as a topic of conversation here, or a subject to address. God the Father and his protege, the one who became his son, have always existed. The Father, that being, was always in charge, and the other being who became Christ was second in command. Now, they created some beings, and everything was wonderful in the kingdom of God because there was a hierarchy. Uh, you had the Father, and you had the Son, and you had the archangels who were over the rest of the angels who had been created. So there were cherubims, there were seraphims, there were different ranks among the angels. And the three cherubim had were in charge of one-third of the angels each. Now, there came a time when one named Hillel, the world calls him Lucifer, but Hillel was the correct name. He was not a light bringer. He was a destroyer of light. That's another subject for another time. But he decided that he had a mind of his own. He was just as good as God. God should not have rule or leadership or uh, any part above him. That he was just as smart as God was. In fact, he might have been a little smarter, come to think of it. And God had taken too much upon himself. So he decided that he would take over the throne of God. Now that's an interesting concept in itself. You should not be our leader, so I instead will be the leader. 
They're not trying to get rid of leadership. They're trying to become the leaders, to call the shots, if you will. That was what Satan did from the very beginning of rebellion against God. So the attitude that many, many, many throughout the greater church of God have had and the many papers that have been written are rooted away, way back in time. Now let's move forward to the creation of mankind. God created Adam and Eve, placed them on the earth, and he said, the man is in charge. There have been two or three women since then who would argue that point, but that's what God said. Man was to be the head of the house. Now, he was to be the patriarch of mankind. Okay? God put him in charge. There were only two people, but one of them was in charge. One of them was supposed to call the shots. Now, Satan came along, who already had a history of rebelling against anything that God did. And he went to the woman, who was, in that sense, under Adam, a help me to Adam, not in charge, but there to help, to serve, to give, to love, uh, and so on, to fulfill her duties. Well, Eve was in the same position, in that sense, on a smaller scale, that Satan had been in when he decided to rebel against God and say, I'm just as good as you are. Okay? So Satan did not go to Adam first. He went to Eve, who had been in the same position he had been. And he convinced her to go against God's direction. And Adam then acquiesced, capitulated, knuckled under, or whatever you want to say, to Satan and the woman. But God did not like that. They were cast out of the garden, and Adam was given a sentence, a punishment by God, as was Eve. We won't go into all that. I just want to get the basic bones of what occurred here. Now, from that moment on, mankind degenerated terribly. There was no patriarch. There was no one in charge. Every man did according to what he wished. That occurred later in the history of Israel, during the time of the judges. And it was not a good time. It didn't work out too well for Israel, just as it didn't before the flood. Now, Enoch came along and tried to preach righteousness, tried to preach the word of God, and in fact did quite a bit of that teaching. But he was rejected, and God just removed him. Perhaps that he not be killed, and he finished out his life, and the totality of his days are listed. So God determined they're not going to listen to those whom I send. This started early. Therefore, I will destroy mankind from off the face of the earth, because they were following Satan's way in rebellion to God, starting with Adam and Eve. So he had Noah prepare a boat and preach righteousness for a hundred years. And they all rejected the only man on earth who was preaching the truth of God at that point. 
So God decided instead of killing everybody, he would save Noah and seven others and try again. So he did. Then later on, he found a man whom he deemed righteous and tested him carefully to be able to say at some point, now I know you will be the father of the faithful. So he established a new order. He did not gather a bunch of people together and vote to put Abraham in. He established him. And he carried that line where he wanted it to go, including Isaac, Jacob, and ultimately Joseph. And they were in charge. Does anyone deny that Joseph was in charge? Now, notice also that God let Joseph know that he was appointing him. He had the dreams. He had the coat of many colors. He had the dream about his father, his mother, his brethren bowing down to him. Blew him away. And you know who else it really blew away? Them. They couldn't handle that. So they eventually sold him into slavery after deciding not to kill him. And God caused those dreams to come true. And Joseph is the one who established Israel when Jacob came down and brought the family. And God caused Joseph, after he had gone through many trials, to be put in charge of the whole land of Mitzrayim under Pharaoh, second in command. And pretty soon Israel disobeyed God, and God allowed them to go into slavery. Now notice so far, God had told Satan, you will be in charge of one-third of the angels, but that wasn't enough. He wanted them all, and he wanted the throne of God. He made it clear to Adam, you were the first man, you were in charge from God himself. Then he did the same thing with Noah. He did the same thing with uh, Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob, he had... Uh, conversation with and then he gave Joseph the dreams and told him you are going to be in charge and he was now after they had been in captivity now for this whole time they had been almost the whole time they had been in Egypt or Mitzrayim God chose by a vote of all the people a leader to bring them out of that problem did he not? No, he did not. <laughs> he had a little burning bush over here that Moses was drawn to, and he told Moses what Moses was to do. Moses was to be the leader of all, of all Israel. He was to bring them out of captivity. He was to lead them to the promised land. He was to do the will of God and teach them the commandments which God would later give him. And after that, because of disobedience, the, the other statutes and ordinances and sacrifices and everything were instituted by Moses at God's direction after they sinned. But God put Moses in charge, did he not? And then Aaron was in charge of specifically the Levites and the administration of religion 
Moses was over all, but he was the civic leader, uh, number one, and he was also a prophet and a minister as well. But Aaron was given uh, the Levites. He was to be over them, to direct them, to guide them, to lead them, to correct them when they did wrong, and to lead the religious side. And the sister to Aaron and Moses was Miriam. And where did they get an attitude? They said, Moses, you take too much on yourself. Hmm. Was that the last time that attitude ever came out through history? No. Still coming up. You're putting yourself above us. We're just as good as you are. We have brains. Who do you think you are being in charge and telling us what to do? How'd that work for them? Well, leprosy isn't a real good thing. Korah did the same thing. God, you shouldn't have put Moses there. I can do a better job than Moses does. We shouldn't have this kind of leadership. What kind of leadership was there? Hierarchy. Captains of tens, captains of hundreds, captains of thousands. Different cycles and courses of the priests. So there was order and office within the priesthood. They didn't like that. They wanted to be able to have self-determination because they were just as smart. They may have been just as smart. They may have also been more righteous. Who knows? Moses may really indeed have gone against the law or the desire of God when he married a woman, apparently of a different race, that God did not approve of at that time and for his purposes. Now maybe because other times God did allow interracial marriage, maybe God did not have a problem with that, but Miriam and Aaron did, you see. Did Moses get in trouble with God? No, Miriam and Aaron did because of the rebellion against whom God had put there and the office that God had ordained him to hold. Now, Moses had teeth. He was in charge. He answered all decisions and judgments until the people had grown so numerous that he just couldn't handle every case. So his father-in-law suggested make lower judges. And the simpler matters, the smaller matters, they can answer. But if the answer is too big or the matter is too big for their wisdom to handle... Take it on up to Moses. So there was hierarchy there. And you know, God approved it. It's in the Bible. It's part of what Moses it's part of Moses' record. And God blessed that. Okay? Moses made his mistakes. He struck the rock instead of speaking. He didn't get to go into the promised land, but he's going to be in the kingdom of God, Hebrews eleven says. God can deal with those whom he appoints. And it is not Korah's or Miriam's or Aaron's or anybody else's business. Thank you. God can deal with it. And they have many examples wherein he did. Sorry, but it was Moses' way or the highway. Or leprosy or whatever came upon you or getting swallowed up in the earth. That's the way it was. 
I'm not saying any of this in anger. I'm just teaching you what the Bible says, what the record is. If you have ears to hear, please hear, because there are some who are being led astray and are not getting the full picture of the whole process of history from Satan on down. And they are missing the major points from the Bible and striving over a few Greek words, which Paul warns us not to do, and taking things out of context to satisfy the human allure that Satan had and that he used on Eve and consequently Adam and upon others down throughout history. So I'm trying to give you a thumbnail sketch of the overview of God and man and what has occurred since man was created so that we can put other things upon that skeleton of history and fit them in properly instead of twisting them away because we have a narrow-minded or carnal or human view of things. Do we want to make the same mistakes that those in history have made? Do we really want to? All right. What about Samuel? God had appointed Samuel, remember? He had come to... Oh, what was his name? Uh, and uh, Eli, sorry. And Samuel heard his name being called in the night. And he didn't know what this was all about, but he heard it again. He'd go to Eli, and Eli say, I didn't call you. Well, you know the story. Finally, Samuel realized this was a call from God. So God himself appointed Samuel to do a job. That's the way God has done it, traditionally. Now, the people decided they didn't like Samuel. He was essentially a righteous man doing it God's way, and God had put him in that position, but the people couldn't see that, that that's what God had done. So, they decided, as they looked around, hey, all these other nations have kings, and we've got this prophet Samuel. We want a king like everybody else. So God said, Okay, people, we've been through this before in the days of Satan, of Adam, of Noah, and so on, and Moses. But you want to try it again? You want to do it differently than I have set it up? Okay, you can have a king. So they decided which man they wanted to be king. One of the few times in history that God said, okay, you choose, go for it. He didn't approve of it. He didn't agree with it. But he said, you're hard-hearted, go for it. So Samuel was tall and handsome, and boy, he'd make a beautiful king here to set against these Gentile kings. He's probably taller than any of them, and blah, 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 you know. How'd that work out for them? Not so good. Satan worked on Saul, and he became violent and demon-influenced, if not possessed, and so on. 
Now, God had said you can have a king, and I don't know that it was against his wishes entirely uh, that kings be established in Israel, because he does say we'll be kings and priests in the millennium in the world tomorrow. So there is a place for kings and priests in the world tomorrow. But the people did a lousy job. The majority, as Herbert Armstrong often said, is always wrong. Just a fact. When you have mob rule or majority vote, uh, things go wrong. They always have and always will. That's just the way history is written. Now, how did God then choose the successor to Saul? He told Samuel, I want you to go to the sons of Jesse, and I will show you who to choose as the next king. So he went through the tallest and the oldest and the brightest and whatever of the sons, and Samuel looked at them all and said, Nope, 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 nope. This isn't what God wants. And they said, Don't you have any more sons? Well, there's little David out there. He's with the sheep. Well, go get him. That's the one. That's the one God has instructed me, however God did it, to anoint. So he was anointed. David had his problems, did he not? God corrected David, did he not? David is going to be king of all Israel in spite of whatever sins he committed and perpetrated throughout his life. God had mercy on David. And he said that there would not be a man lacking in the line of David throughout history. So God took care of David, took care of his problems, meted out the punishment. Others in the kingdom and in the family tried to get rid of David, but could not do it. God did not allow it. David died in his own bed at age 70, having fulfilled the full amount. So they couldn't get rid of David, even though they tried. Now let's look a bit at the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God showed them, approached them, gave them a message, and told them to impart it to Israel. Now, were they toothless? Were they there as advisors or mere servants? Or what? Read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel sometime. They minced no words. They were in charge. They spared no one, including the leaders, the kings, the general membership of Israel. They spared no one. God instructed them on how to approach the situations. I mentioned those main three, but there were others. And what did they do? They sawed them in half or asunder. They stoned them. They threw them in the outhouse hole as Jeremiah. They did everything they could to get rid of those prophets. And at some point, when they had finished their job, God allowed some of them to actually be killed, as he did the apostles and others whom he had appointed. But they were definitely put in a position to rebuke, to exhort, to correct. That's the way God did things. It has been ever since we started this little scenario from the beginning, and it will continue as we move forward. This is God's way of doing things. And remember, the God changes not. 
Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He thinks the same way now that he thought then. Okay? Let's move on to the New Testament. Because here is where people begin to say that the ministry does not have power, does not have authority, that they are to be mere servants. Now, I know and have read many times all those scriptures which show that power and authority and office can be misused, it can be abused. I have read all those that talk about how the ministry is to be there as servants of the people, whether that be anointing or holding the hand of the sick or serving in those ways, or whether it be preparing a sermon to deliver, which was done all through the New Testament, which is also a service because it helps us understand and know the Word of God better. Just as even Ezra stood on a pulpit made of wood high above the people, read the Bible, and gave the sense of it, or that is, expounded it. So that's something God allowed and approved of way back Nothing wrong with that. It's the way God did it through his leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. I know all those scriptures that talk about love and mercy and kindness and gentleness and how the ministry is to treat the people as family members and treat them, help them, encourage them, and so on, serve them in whatever ways. So I'm aware of all those. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those here. They're there. Okay, I want you to know I know that. They're there. And they mean something. They're important. They're very important. But the ones that people don't like, the ones they ignore, the ones they pay no attention to or despise, are the ones I want to address because it's at the crux of the issue. So, with that little sketch of history, let's look into the New Testament and see if the ministry had power, if it had authority, if it was to tell people how they should live, what they should do, or not. Did Paul indeed give advice on family, on husband and wife relationships, on child rearing? Did the New Testament address what people should eat? Did Paul talk about how women should dress and what they should wear? How their, how their hair should be in length and men's as well? Did Paul discuss those things? Did he direct people? and instruct people in things that had to do with their lives, or did he not? Did James, Peter, John, and Jude, and all the others, or did they not? See, that is the overall flow of the New Testament, and people can set that aside and go to one word in the Greek in Hebrews 13, 17, if they wish, and try to wrest that out of context about obedience and subjection on both sides of the word obey and say it doesn't mean obey, and that they don't have the rule over you. And they're rejecting the entire flow of God's Word and of history and how God has dealt with man. So let's understand that, because we can be led astray very, very easily 
by technical details and by words and context that is rested. Now, is what I said about the things that Paul and the ministry taught true or not? Did Paul tell Titus and Timothy and the other ministers to tell people what to do and how to do it, or did he not? Is that the New Testament example? Was anything done by democratic rules or majority or vote of the people? There is no instance in the Bible anywhere that God approved or the ministry did a majority vote on anything. You cannot find one instance of that where the people were told you can make this decision. Now, I am quite familiar with Matthew 18. That is misused, abused, and misunderstood by many. They think that the ecclesia there does not include the ministry, I presume, because it said the things are to be handled on the smallest, the lowest level possible, one-on-one if there's a problem, two or three witnesses if there are any witnesses of a problem, maybe just to witness that the talk was made because maybe they weren't eyewitnesses to the issue. It says, then take it to the ecclesia. The ecclesia means the called out ones. The ministry are part of the called out ones. And so far through history, we've seen that God always worked through a man and men under him to accomplish his purposes. That is the history throughout man's experience. Matthew 18 does not change that. The apostles did not understand it the way people try to make it work. Because they never put it to a vote of the membership on anything. And in fact, we will see that they directed and ordered and commanded and rebuked while at the same time serving and giving and loving and all those things that are also supposed to be done. It has to cover the whole human experience, not just something that someone wants it to cover. Now, this is extremely important for us to understand, brethren, because we're going to get into the end time and what God is going to do in the end time, and we're going to get into the millennium and how God is going to construct his government and oversight of people then. So he is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he will be the same tomorrow. So whatever we find him doing in the Old Testament, he will do in the New Testament. And whatever he does in the New Testament, he is going to do in the kingdom of God. Okay? This is fundamental. This is something that is the crux of the way of God. Government is no small issue. and never has been. And none of these arguments that people throughout the church, the splintered, scattered church of God, none of the arguments that they are making fit what we have been discussing. Now let's go on into the New Testament a bit and understand this. Let's see 
if the disciples who became apostles understood Matthew 18 in the way that some people try to make it sound today. <coughs> God established offices within the church. We'll see that. And he caused them to render decisions on doctrine and people's lives, judgments on whether people were to remain in the church or not, and it was never put to a vote of the overall ecclesia or membership of the church. So if it was not, the disciples, the apostles, the leaders totally misunderstood Christ's inter in instruction in Matthew 18, or they did understand it, and people who are trying to put us into a majority vote situation don't understand it. Now, which is it going to be? If you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you need to understand how God thinks. You need to understand that you will be under authority through all eternity. And God will not allow anyone in his kingdom who does not accept that. Satan, he who became Satan, could not stand God's direct authority. Now, God never made any mistakes. He was in charge. He was also loving and kind and gentle and all those qualities of his spirit. Nothing wrong with him. But Satan decided he should not be in charge. So this understanding is the most elemental, the most important thing that we can probably discuss and get right. Because it impacts our lives throughout all eternity. So let's understand how God thinks. Now, if a third of the angels followed he who became Satan, this created a serious division, a serious animosity, a serious hatred that began between Satan and those who followed him and God and the holy angels. It caused division and dissension. And God hates division. He wants us to all come to the place we speak the same thing, do the same things. It isn't an accomplishment yet, but it is a goal and a purpose of God. Now, God, in creating the physical human realm of mankind, decided that the optimal way to prove us and whether or not we would be willing to be subject to his authority throughout all eternity was to do what? Make us live under the authority of men. Men who sweat, men who sin, men who have wrong attitudes, men who make mistakes. It's a tough primer course. But God determined that it had to be done that way so that he could come to know that we would accept not only his rule, but the rule of others, even men, as a test 
before he will give us eternal life. Now I know it's a pain in the back. I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult for a woman to accept her husband as the head of the house. And she rebels against it, but that's God's way. It is against her nature. She does not want to be told what to do by that sweating, stinking, lazy guy laying on the couch. Or whatever the situation might be. It's difficult, girls. And you know it better than I do. And it's hard for children to accept that God put the woman and the man in charge of the house and that they are to make the rules and tell you what to do. You rebel at that from the time you're that long. You rebel at that from the time you draw your first breath and somebody spanks you on the butt to get you breathing and you yell at it. It was done for your good, but you don't like it. And you don't like it when they put you a diaper on and it feels uncomfortable and you really don't like it when you foul it up and then they start changing it. It starts early and gets worse. Now, if God doesn't believe in a hierarchical government... Why in the world would he make us go through this order in families? Why in the world would he? If there is never going to be such in the future, and if there never has been in the past, why do you girls and kids have to put up with mothers and fathers? It is a very type of the kingdom of God. When the father will be the patriarch of the family, he's male. Christ, who is male, will be the husband of the bride who takes the place of mother. And they will have charge over the children throughout all eternity. Now, I wasn't going to get to this, but I'll quote one scripture here. I may repeat it. Remember Isaiah 29.30? In the kingdom of God, you will see your teachers. And when you decide to do something wrong, someone is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, Don't do that. This is the way. Walk you in it. They will be, dare I say it, in charge. And you will be directed and you will be told, if you're human, what to do by those whom God has put in charge. And if some don't do what they are instructed, they will get no rain. If they don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll have no rain. And sooner or later, when it gets dry enough, they say, I think I'll go up to the feast. That's the way it's going to be forever. There will never come a time when you will not be under authority. We might as well adjust to it now.
And throughout the history of mankind, God has burned this lesson in over and over and over. Now let's continue here. I have a lot of scriptures I want to cover, hopefully fairly quickly. But maybe I should not try to hasten through this too much. I don't want to speak about it on Pentecost. I want to have something, uh, let's say, more inspiring, more helpful uh, for that day, meet in due season. So I don't want to carry this there. But this is one of probably the most important subject in the Bible. We've got to get it right, brethren. We really, really do. If we don't understand God and the way he will rule and the way he has ruled through people, then we don't see God. And we are not rejecting people. We are rejecting God's way of doing things through people. And he has said that on more than one occasion. Now let's just start picking out some I looked up last night because these issues have been brought up about obedience, about in charge, and so on. First uh, Timothy 4. We'll just dive in. I didn't organize these particularly, but we'll just take them one at a, one at a time as they appear. First Timothy 4. Here... Paul is giving Timothy instruction as a minister in how he is to do things. Here he says, These things command and teach. You mean Timothy was in a position to command people? Isn't that what Paul says? He is to command and teach. Let no man despise your youth. He was a young man. And it's easy for older people to despise a position of authority that a younger man has. But be you an example of the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Those are the things that would help him <coughs> maintain the respect of the people. So he was to be those things, but he was also to be in command and to tell them what needed to be said, just as the prophets of old, just as Moses. I do not hear these non-government papers bringing up that verse. I don't see it in any of their writings. They overlook that one. First Timothy 5, verse 17. Uh, Let the elders that rule well... Overseers, if you want, rulers, guides, teachers. You can strive over the word if you want, but command is pretty clear, and so is rule. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, and it's speaking of money here, double pay, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Then he goes on to say, against an elder, that's an office that, that a man could be ordained to if he met the qualifications of Titus and Timothy, as Paul laid them out. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So, you could not bring a complaint 
to the ministry about an elder or a minister, whoever, without two or, it, or better, three actual eyewitnesses to the sin that had been committed. You're not even to listen to it unless you have three witnesses, two, at least two witnesses of that particular episode, whatever it might have been. Otherwise, it would have degenerated into he said, she said. If you got crossways with a minister, you could accuse him of anything you wanted to, and then you could get people to agree with you that he was a bad apple anyway, and you could bring charges. But Paul directed, he was in charge, Paul was in charge as the apostle. And he said, do not even listen to an accusation unless there are two or three eyewitnesses. So if you hear that Nelson or Gordon has done something, or you see them do something that you think is wrong, you should not say anything to it, about it, to anyone, nor should you bring it to the ministry for correction unless there are at least two and preferably three eyewitnesses to the actual infraction. Not to even be listened to or repeated. Now, if you alone saw it, you do have the right, no matter who they are, to go and say, I think I saw such and such. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw you do this. And it appears to be contrary to God's word. Can we talk about it? And hopefully they'll be humble enough and meek enough, or I will, or whoever, to address it to you. But you have no right to tell it to anyone else, even if it is absolutely something you saw with your own two eyes. Them that sin, rebuke before all that others also may fear. Do we put it to a vote of the majority of the people of whether this person actually sinned or not? No. He told Timothy, as an evangelist, one of the appointed offices of God, not to hear a complaint, not to even listen to it, unless it was seen, literally seen, by at least two people. And that Timothy was to rebuke that man in front of all. Not the ecclesia in terms of the whole congregation voting on the matter. Is there a contradiction between what Paul is writing in Matthew 18 and Christ's words or not? No, there is not. Because there aren't contradictions in the Bible. There are misunderstandings that we might have, but not contradictions, other than some mistranslations and so on, which certainly there are. So Paul didn't understand Matthew 18 the way some people are trying to say it reads. So the ministry was to rebuke that elder. Timothy was, Paul's instruction, so that others might fear and not do the same thing. People say that the minister, anybody can anoint, anybody can baptize, anybody can do any of these things. 
No, there are many scriptures which indicate that that is to be done by those duly ordained. Here he tells him not to lay hands, verse 22, suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep yourself pure. So they were not to lay hands on just anyone because they were good golfing buddies or had a lot of money or whatever reasons. Uh, They had to meet the qualifications that Paul gave Timothy and Titus and other places. All right, let's go on. Second um, Timothy two four. Let's see. Is this one I wanted? Well, he says here in chapter two, verse one. Thou, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit you to faithful men who also shall be able to teach others. So it was to pass on from Paul through Timothy to others who could also teach if they understood and were appointed to do so. You therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Emmanuel. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life and so on. I don't think that's the one that I had in mind, although it fits to some degree. Four two maybe that's maybe I wrote it down wrong. Oh yeah, uh, decidedly so. Now he gives Timothy here in chapter four uh, direct instructions personally. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, it is appearing in his and his kingdom. Preach the word. That's what he was ordained to do. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove. That's not just serving. Reproving is a very strong thing that is done. Uh, Rebuke. Now, when Christ rebuked Peter, he said, Get behind me, Satan. Rebuke is a strong form of correction. And he told, Paul told Timothy, in no uncertain terms, you are to do that. This is scripture, brethren. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Exhort with all patience or long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And that is upon us, I'll guarantee you. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they will set themselves up as teachers when God has not ordained them to do so. That was going to happen. And this was written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. He goes on and gives him more, but that should be enough from that one to give us an idea that it's more than just service. Exhortation and rebuke is an important part of service to people. If your child is about to step off a cliff, do you say, now, honey, I'm going to come and I'm going to walk over there and gently pull you back from the cliff? No. Stop! It's a sharp correction. And if they continue, then you rebuke them. Don't do that. They're running on, out on the freeway. 
It is a great service to that child to exhort them or rebuke them loudly. To command them. Their life is at stake. And when your eternal life is at stake because of itching ears addressing doctrines that are simply unscriptural, it is the ministry's job to pull you back from the cliff or out of the freeway and not get run over by Satan and carnality. And Paul makes no bones about it. Titus 2, verse 15. He gives him instruction. And then he says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise you. Now there is an apostle trained by Christ himself for three and a half years in the desert who tells a young evangelist that it is part of his duty and part of his responsibility to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Oh, that word grates on some people's minds. Why? Because they have an agenda. They're just as good as you are, and maybe they are, but they have not been appointed. And they are not a part of the government of God. You know what? Any minister that has ever lived has made mistakes, had problems, had trouble controlling himself. Paul said that of himself. And yet he used his authority, and he told Timothy and Titus to use their authority. Because God had appointed them to the job, no matter what their deficiencies were. And that was true, whether it was Adam or Noah. He got drunk, too, you know, Noah did. Or Abraham or Moses, who lost his temper and struck the rock. Or David and some of his egregious sins. Doesn't matter who it was, God had appointed them, and he backed them. Paul included who said he didn't do the things he needed to do and the things he didn't want to do, he did. Well, Paul sinned. He was admitting he didn't give you a list of them. Didn't have to. But he knew that he had to fight the fight to enter the kingdom of God. Now, somebody is not being an overlord if they warn you that you are about to destroy yourself in whatever way you're going about it. I know there have been abuses of authority, and Paul and the others speak against abusing authority. But you have to preach the Word, instant in season and out of season. And the Word of God is like a two-edged sword that cuts to the marrow, to the bone. And you can't let any of those words drop to the ground. I will answer to God. Twice as much as you will. My judgment will be twice as severe since he put me in this job. And he did. Not only that, but you have to be instructed in every part of life. Now, as human beings, sometimes we can take this pretty easy. You know, people out in the world, if they want to smoke, they smoke. 
Well, we've been able to show that it is harmful to the body, and God told us to take care of our bodies, the temple of God. So we can tell people on the authority of God, even though it isn't in here, thou shalt not smoke tobacco, we can tell people it is wrong and preach that it is wrong, and we have the right to tell them not to come to church if they're going to smoke, because they are denying a very important principle of God. Now, most of you don't have a problem with that, because you don't want to smoke anyway. But now if they tell you you shouldn't eat junk that is not food, that is processed chemicals, and you like them, oh baby, you're interfering. You ain't preaching, you're meddling. It's the exact same principle. God has much to say about what we eat and drink and how much we eat and drink. But boy, a minister can get in his trouble, get in trouble with people if he goes there and talks about those things. It has a lot to say about child-rearing. But I got in trouble with some parents when I gave a series and explained the scriptures about that. They didn't want to hear what God had to say about it. You can't pick your battles. We all have to live by every word of God. Matthew 4.4, 4, Luke 4.4, 4, Deuteronomy 8.7. We have to do that. And it is my responsibility, as Jeremiah 9 says, not to let one of his words fall to the ground. So I cannot bypass or avoid any scriptural instruction about any part of life. It regulates sex. Oh, just go on and on. All the intimate, very uh, tender and private things in life, the Bible has something to say about. Quite a bit to say about. Doesn't matter what it is. But dare you preach some things that the Bible says? I'm hard enough, I hard nosed enough, I go ahead and do it because God tells me to. I'm sorry. If you don't like it, that's too bad. You can go find somebody that will preach soft and easy things. You can find them, they're not hard to find. There are whole big churches that do that. But my eternal life is based on me not letting any of the words of God slip to the ground, and to inform you of all of them, remind you of all of them, and to expound them to you. We're just getting started. 1 Corinthians 7. I don't mean we're just getting started in this sermon. We'll truncate it pretty soon, but we're just getting started on this. You know why it's a problem? Because there are dozens and hundreds of scriptures I could go to on this subject that anyone who writes an anti-government or anti-minister or anti-in-charge paper ignores. Literally hundreds that they will not address. They've got their little trail through a few Greek words and a few things taken out of context that do not fit at all. They rest the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Paul gave a command here, and he said it is backed up by Christ himself. 
I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, celibate. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. And then later he tells them you can only marry within the church. But let not the wife depart from her husband. And then he goes on. He makes a decision here, a doctrinal decision. I was going to approach it uh, in another section. But he says in verse 12, But to the rest speak I, not the eternal. This isn't something Christ said that Paul is instituting here. And he says so because there was a situation that had occurred within the church that obviously Christ had not addressed to the apostles or to Paul. So when the matter came up, <coughs> he addressed it and made a decision about it that would affect all the churches, as we shall see. Now there is a great deal of authority involved there. And he didn't put it to a vote of that congregation in Corinth or any of the others. The rest speak I, not the eternal. If any man has a wife that believes not and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And then he says, he goes, I won't go through the whole thing, but he says that you are not bound to an unconverted person if they will not let you serve God in peace. In other words, if God only called one and did not call the other, if they would not let you serve God, but persecuted you and decried you and put you down and gave you a hassle over it, you could divorce them and you were not bound. In other words, if you're not bound, you're free, and you can marry someone else only in the church. You can't repeat what you just went through. But if they will not let you serve God in peace, there comes a time when not only can you, but you should depart from them so that you can be sure you marry Christ, not just some man. Now, where does he say that? Yeah, verse 17. He made a doctrinal change, and it is indeed a change because he says, Christ said, but I say, and obviously Christ accepted it because he included it in the Scripture. Okay? Paul rendered a decision on something which had not come up before, and he says in verse 17, But as God has distributed to every man, as the Eternal has called everyone, so let him walk. In other words, accept this administrative doctrinal decision that I have solely, by myself, made. So ordain I in all churches. Not just you Corinthians, but this is to be throughout the church. Paul had the authority conferred by Christ himself to make this change and to direct, command, ordain, institute, whatever word you want to use, into the church. I would fear and tremble to make some kind of decision like that myself because I want scriptural proof 
to follow anything. But Paul felt confident in this situation that came up that God had not addressed. He was confident enough that he had had the mind of God in three and a half years of direct instruction that Christ would allow him to make this decision. And indeed, Christ backed it up and put it in the Bible. And it is there for us to follow today. Now, was he in charge or not? Was he able to make doctrinal decisions, administrative decisions, or not? This is remedial, brethren. This is the whole flow of the Bible. This, not this particular example, but this kind of thing, rebuke, exhort, instruct, command, ordain, is all through the New Testament, over and over and over and over again. But there are those who will pick out a Greek word and try to use the third or fourth definition of it or whatever and strive over words which Paul said do not do. What time is it? I should quit. Um, well, that's enough to give you some food for thought for today. But there's been quite a bit going on in uh, the email world over the last week or more about this very subject and I felt that since it is sensitive and since there are misunderstandings it indeed needs to be covered and we need to get a look at the whole picture not just a narrow view that some who have an agenda want to do so uh, that's a good start I got through the first fifth of the first page there's a lot of it